welcome, Justin, to the podcast. We're happy to have you here. And happy to be here. Yeah, and I've had the pleasure of working with you through a local educational organization on instructional leadership. It's been very informative for me to watch you lead groups and just learn a little bit more about um, what principals need and how we can use, I wouldn't say simple, but I would say very practical strategies to be just more effective and and making me think about ways to rethink my days. Um, so a lot of this work is based on your book. Now we're talking uh, 21 days to high performance instructional leadership, but you also have the principal center and you do a lot of work out of there and you work with many principals from what I understand. Can you just say more about your the principal center, what it's about, what do you do and how do you help leaders? Absolutely. So at the Principal Center, it's our mission to build capacity for instructional leadership. And a big part of that has always been around helping school leaders regularly get into classrooms, because I believe that that's where the true work is being done, right? You know, if, if we are to be instructional leaders, it, it only makes sense that we would spend a significant amount of time in classrooms where the, the instruction, where the learning uh, are taking place. So yeah, that's a, a big part of what we do. And uh, through all of our programs, through the book, as you mentioned, uh, it all comes down to those, uh, those key interactions between instructional leaders and the teachers they work with. Mm -hmm. And in the title of your book, it's as suggested, professional growth occurs through conversation around practice. And so how do frequent visits to classrooms help these discussions? Yeah, that's a, that's a great framing there that professional growth occurs through conversation because, you know, it, it makes sense. We nod our heads and, and kind of agree with that. But a lot of instructional leadership really isn't based on that assumption. A lot of, of what's out there, of what's being done in the name of improving teaching and learning is much more along the lines of directive feedback or kind of drive-by feedback or you know feedback that's left on the doorstep or left on a sticky note or left on a form rather than a true conversation. So I think you know to, to have a true conversation uh, adds a, a human dimension that uh, you know, that really gets at how we change, how we make decisions as, as humans. Uh, so I, I don't want to understate the, uh, the importance of the conversation aspect there because it is something that often we overlook. We think, well, I'm the, I'm the principal, of course, they'll listen to me. Uh, you know, it can be a one-way conversation, but, you know, really if we want people to, to truly uh, be open to change, you know, we have to be open to, to listening as well. And it does have to be a conversation. Um, so, so to your question about how do we, uh, how does our practice of getting into classrooms more frequently uh, mm -hmm. contribute to that? I think a lot of it comes down to context. Right, you know, as a as a principal, you're required to be in classrooms X number of times a year, and X is usually a pretty small number, right? The the one or two formal observations, and I have to ask Matt, as a when you were a teacher, did you ever get visited much more than that, or was it pretty pretty minimal when you were a teacher? It was pretty minimal, and I and it was and to be fair to my leaders, it was it, that was just the standard practice. I mean, I think walkthroughs sure. are just coming into prominence, um, but it was once, maybe twice a year. Yeah, and that was my experience as well. And I think that's the experience of, of almost everyone that, uh, you know, you, you just don't see your principal or your assistant principal who evaluates you all that often. And of course, that's because they're busy, right? There are a million other things to do. There are fires to put out, uh, metaphorically speaking, and sometimes literally. And there's just so much else that, uh, that instructional leadership is always one of those important but not urgent kinds of things. But I think mm -hmm. when, it's, when it's always not urgent, 
we lose the the frequency that makes it not really true that we can have quality over quantity. You know, I mean, there, there's this idea that like, oh, if you spend quality time with your kids, you know, it's not about the quantity. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, maybe quality matters more than quantity, but you can't really have quality without quantity. You know, like if I'm going to spend time with my kids, I want it to be frequently, right? <laughs> I want it to be all the time, not just, you know, a little bit here and there, but very high quality. You know, I'd much rather have, uh, you know, a, a lower stakes, more frequent opportunity to get into classrooms than just that, you know, that big once a year, everybody's prepared for it. We, you know, we've, you know, protected against any interruptions. Like I would rather run the risk of being interrupted or, you know, getting sidetracked or not seeing something that's all that interesting by coming more often and having more chances because it's, it's in that frequency that you get the context that you need to really understand uh, what you're seeing, you know, to, to be able to put it all in perspective rather than just be kind of a stranger to the classroom. Just like, I don't want to be a stranger to my kids and say, Hey, I'm, I'm here for some quality time. You know, we've really got to, uh, to invest that time in the relationship and in building the awareness of what's going on in every classroom, what's going on with our curriculum, knowing our students and how, uh, you know, what they're working on as learners. So I think all that, all that context just is, is hugely relevant for the feedback that we provide to teachers in those conversations. That's a good point you make is I'd rather be interrupted while I'm in classrooms um, and at least I'm making the time I'm prioritizing that and if I have to be pulled away you know, so be it but at least I'm, I'm making that attempt and yeah. you as you mentioned you value efficiencies of getting in there frequently as well as the effectiveness um, and they seem to work hand in hand you know the more times we're in there the more contacts we receive how did you arrive on three visits per day. Yeah, I think three a day just seemed to be the sweet spot for me. Like it's, it's not impossible to, uh, you know, to keep it in your head. Like you can kind of tell if you've done three visits a day, uh, it's enough that you have to really strive for it. Like it's not going to happen easily. You have to really push yourself to get into classrooms three times a day, but it also gets you around to each person on a pretty regular basis. Like if you have about 30 teachers, I think 30 is a typical kind of average. Some people have 45 teachers, some, some people may only have 15 that they supervise. But if you, you know, if you think about an average number of teachers that a given administrator supervises, you can get around to everyone roughly every two weeks if you visit three people a day. So that that to me is what makes it the sweet spot. And you know, going two weeks without seeing somebody it's not too much and it's not too little, you know, like you're, they're, they're not sick of you <laughs> if you've dropped by every two weeks, but you also are not a stranger to the classroom. And, then, and that's exactly, I have 30, around 30 in my school. And um, I, I, I've, especially during the pandemic, I've noticed when I have not been there as much because of just the situation, I, I do feel a little like I'm missing out on, on what, what's happening. I'm not as, don't have that instructional pulse, as they call it. So in order to have these conversations, be productive. We were talking before about school-wide expectations and, and having clearly spelled out practices or strategies, a framework to be able to have conversations around. So what strategies do you find effective, not just for clarity, I think is important, but also for commitment mm. of everyone to say, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, I, I, but also that I agree with that practice and I'm going to try it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think establishing a common vocabulary really is the first step. And sometimes we think we have a common vocabulary, but what we really have is common buzzwords or common terms without common definitions. 
Uh, and I think the, the biggest opportunity in most schools is to simply get more familiar with the existing evaluation language. You know, it's, it's easy to be reminded to pull out the evaluation rubric at the beginning of the year for goal setting and at the end of the year for writing the final evaluation. But if that's the only chance we have to use that language as our vocabulary when we're talking about practice, it's just not going to be that familiar to, you know, to us as leaders and certainly not to teachers. You know, if they're only using this language for a two hour window every year, then it's, it's just not going to reach that, that level of a shared uh, vocabulary, a shared understanding. So I encourage people to look at their existing evaluation criteria. You know, if you have a rubric like Charlotte Danielson's very high quality rubric that describes very clear uh, criteria, you know, very clear areas, or I think it's broken into domains and components. Those are all broken out very, very neatly. And then there are levels of performance uh, for each uh, component. And when we, we use that language on a frequent basis, we look at that rubric and we say, okay, I see this word is in this column to describe this practice. We start to sharpen our vision and get on the same page in a conversation so that we're not just using a common buzzword. We're not just saying, well, we both, we both use the term differentiate. So we know what that means. We're using language in a more precise and leveled way because we're drawing from that common document that uh, you know that serves as our our shared framework and then I think we can also establish that kind of language that's unique to our school you know there are certainly things in every school that uh, that distinguish your school from other schools that make it a unique place and being able to describe that in specific terms you know if you think in, in, in terms of that Danielson framework format you know if you can break an expectation into components and then describe levels of performance for those components you're going to be in great shape and you're not going to be limited to just the buzzwords and I think that's that's the key thing is to really be specific about what you mean and I think the commitment comes just from having, you know, having input, having a, a voice in developing those expectations. So, so you can take some of that language and make it your own, I think is what you're saying, as long as it's aligned with how we're being, I guess, evaluated, but also really how it's related to success for kids as well. Um, but you can parse out that language to, to make it work within the identity of your own school. So it, it's not just lockstep with an evaluation tool. Yeah, and I, th I think people should feel free to add to it. You know, not to say that we have different standards here, but like we have unique uh, things that we care about here that are more directly applicable to what our teachers are teaching. You know, like one thing to keep in mind about Danielson and other evaluation frameworks is that they're designed to cover everything for every subject, every grade, K through 12. And that means that they're, they're easier for us to use as administrators, but they're not very specific as to what teachers are doing. You know, so if you have a math department or if you have a kindergarten team, you know, they are going to be doing things in particular ways that are worth getting on the same page about, that are worth establishing common expectations for. But it's not the level of detail that you're going to find in an existing rubric like the Danielson framework. So, you know, being able to develop that in-house is just an incredible professional development exercise. And then you have an asset that you can use for improvement. You know, it's a, it's a great tool to have developed internally. And that's where the ownership comes in because you're absolutely creating an agreement around common terms, but on your terms. In your book, you note this too, and I and I I could definitely relate. You said just as teachers' expertise grows, you know, you you address some of that low-hanging fruit, you know, right away that are more easy wins. Leaders sometimes feel this sense of urgency to to be critical, and that's not always the best approach. How do you resist that? 
stance and, and, and what should we do instead? Yeah, great question. So th this is a, a hill that we're all going to encounter in our climb to uh, to get into classrooms more. You know, the, the first opportunity is that low hanging fruit, right? Like if you are, maybe you're new to a building and your predecessor did not get into classrooms very much at all. Well, you start getting into classrooms, you're gonna see some opportunities for quick wins that have been missed for years. And you're gonna be able to provide feedback that makes a big difference right away. And that's gonna feel great. You're going to feel like a true instructional leader. Your teachers are gonna be hopefully pretty happy about it. Maybe they, you've had to shake some things up a little bit uh, and, and people have gotten the message that they're uh, not just gonna be totally ignored and left alone. But after you've taken advantage of those quick wins, you're in a slightly difficult position because it's like, what do you do next? Do I? continue to just kind of ratchet up the pressure. You know, if, if the, the next opportunities are a little harder one, you know, if it's not going to be quite so easy to make those improvements because we already solved the big problems, we already took advantage of the easy opportunities, do we just get more critical? And I think especially for experienced teachers, it can be really hard to find something that would constitute a big improvement. You know, we can make a little suggestion, hey, have you thought about, thought about doing this instead of that? But often, the teacher has thought about doing this instead of that. They've, you know, they're an experienced professional. They've, they've uh, been down this road before. They've tried a lot of the things that are going to occur to us to try. And it can start to feel a little bit like uh, we're just trying to find fault. And I think that's, that's especially true when we, we don't have expertise in or experience in the same grade level or same subject area as the teachers we're working with, they can, they can feel like our well-intended efforts to lead continuous improvement are just an unending kind of ratcheting up of the criticism. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I think that's a, a challenge that could, on the one hand, encourage us to kind of back off and give up. But I think it's an opportunity to get more curious and to say, you know what, the problem is not that teachers need to worry about smaller and smaller things and I need to be more and more critical. The challenge for me now as an instructional leader is that I need to get more curious and I need to be willing to go deeper into our curriculum, deeper into the pedagogy of subjects that I've never taught so that my any feedback that I have is going to be based on a deeper understanding than I had before. You know, like it, it's it's not that we need to be more critical, it's that we need to, to go deeper to really understand the kinds of decisions teachers are making once they've solved those kind of low-hanging fruit issues. I was just in a first grade classroom. Um, I don't know if it was first grade. It was a primary grade, but they had a, um, they were doing some letter writing and they had scaffolded parts of the letter. And I, and I have never taught primary. I was intermediate. And so that I, I did, I, maybe in the past, I would have said, you know, that's enough, too much scaffolding or not enough. And I just instead asked, how do you decide how much scaffolding, how many sentence stems do you decide how do you decide that? And she went into just a very great explanation of, well, we've been out for a month and a half and I felt like I've had to increase my scaffolding so kids can be successful right away. Um, she was able to explain that, explain her thinking, but maybe she'll walk away and say, you know, maybe the kids are ready sooner. I don't know, but I like that suggestion of, of being curious. I also like the suggestion in your book of clustering your classroom visits, at least in the beginning, around a grade level or a department. And you mentioned before creating context and how does that work when you're in the same subject area or age level and how does that help your visits? Yeah, so a lot of it is context and some of it's just efficiency, right? If you uh, are 
heading out of the office to go visit classrooms. Uh, you know, in most schools, there's some sort of geographic clustering. You know, you might have a first grade wing or a science building. If you're on a large uh, high school campus, you might have a uh, you know a fifth grade hallway. You know, so just geographically, it's it's easier to go from one one room to a, a room right next door to it. But it also you know, does provide context in the sense that often teachers are teaching the same subject at the same time. So you can see one part of a lesson in one classroom and then the continuation of that same lesson in a different classroom. And you'll know more about both clips of instruction that you saw, so to speak, because you were in that other classroom, you know, so you can see an entire lesson, you know, sometimes it would work. It doesn't always work out this way, but sometimes it works out that you spend 45 minutes visiting three classrooms you see an entire lesson, you just see a different part of it taught by, uh, by three different people. And that gives you that, you know, like it saves you the, you know, the difficulty of being in the dark about where this was going or, you know, what happened before earlier in the lesson, like you have three times as much context for the lesson that way. Um, I, I would say the other thing that it allows is more direct comparison between the approaches of different people. Because when you see side by side, you know, same curriculum, same age group of kids, same day, you know, <laughs> it allows you to see more clearly the contrasts between uh, different people. And sometimes your feedback can just be advising the person to do what you just saw their, their you don't even have to tell uh, one person that you're getting this from their, their teammate next door. But uh, it really helps with the, the specificity of the feedback because you can see those, you know, those comparisons between classrooms that's got to have influence on like professional learning communities for example when you're then meeting as teams and you can you know now you're a part of that community versus that collaboration versus using their time to ex have them explain to you what what they did and you can make it kind of a continuation yeah um the last question i had is it's just an ongoing debate of whether informal classroom visits should be evaluative or non-evaluative um, I had one person, I've always tried to approach it myself as what I write up, my notes are not going into your evaluation. I mean, you could put it in there as an artifact and you walk and teachers have, but you know, one teacher said, but you can't unsee instruction, right? And you can't forget about it. I mean, that has to influence your judgment and she's not wrong. So where are you at on this issue right now with walkthroughs and where it falls along the support versus judgment spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's just it, right? That you can't unsee something. Once you know it, it's going to factor into kind of your holistic judgments. You know, even if it's not a specific criterion that you evaluate someone on, you know, if you develop a concern or if you see something really great, you know, you're going to remember it. You're, it's going to, to affect the way that you pay attention. It's going to affect, you know, what you notice and how thoroughly you document. So, so I advise administrators to never say that their visits are non-evaluative, like never say that anything is not evaluative because truly nothing really is non-evaluative. You know, if you, if you know, <laughs> if you're aware of some fact, it's going to factor in. But what we don't want is for everything to feel high stakes, right? We don't want every single walkthrough to feel like the teacher is on trial. And part of the, the whole point of getting into classrooms more frequently is to avoid this problem of those one or two formal observations being it, right? Feeling like this high stakes opportunity, this is my one chance to show that I'm competent for the administrator. This is my one chance to give the teacher some useful feedback. Like the frequency is inversely proportional to the stakes, right? The more we're there, the, the lower the stakes, the less we're there, the higher the stakes of each individual visit. So I feel like those go together. 
That's a good point too. You're you're going to see a lot of good things too, and those should those could be also part of um, someone's portfolio of of artifacts if you know, if that's something that you have to collect. And um, so it does go both ways. But I do like that point too of just the more you're in there, that and I have noticed that too. People just are just used to me coming in, and it's really has lowered the stakes when I'm actually coming in with a formal observation. It's just oh, it's just Matt again, just. You know, One more day. Different. Yeah. yeah, it's just another yeah. day, and he's been in here how many times? So, um, so the book is now we're talking twenty one days to high performance instructional leadership. I've been applying these ideas myself, working with Justin. I have found them very helpful. And then, where do you find the Principal Center resource? And you have a lot of nice resources on that site. Yeah, we have a lot of free resources if you just go to principalcenter.com. And down at the bottom, one in particular that I think would be helpful uh, for your listeners is the note cards just for keeping track of classroom visits. And we have software and everybody's got software they use for this. But I found that a lot of people really like just having physical note cards. We have a note cards template that you'll see there at principalcenter.com slash note cards, where you, you make a note card for each teacher. And you take three of those note cards every day. You visit those three teachers, write down the date, and then put those note cards on the bottom of the stack. Every day, you've got your three teachers to visit, and you keep that consistent rotation, uh, however you want to organize them, by team or department or whatever. Uh, but it's it's a great way to make sure that you don't skip anyone, uh, and there are some feedback questions on the back. So highly recommend checking those out. And the principals in our group have been using those, and they said that same thing. Like, I just feel like I'm in classrooms more, and, and they like that quick opportunity for feedback and but really it, it's kind of an accountability system just to make sure I'm getting in classrooms. So. Well, thanks, Justin. This was great. Uh, thanks for being here. Well, thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm.